0: Coming up on First Course Verse, was grunge the best era that existed in my lifetime? Yes. Was I too young for it? Yes. Another era that I was able to soak in and understand a lot more. We're gonna talk about it next. The is the time to live in. It has to be more Welcome to Verse Chorus Verse, episode 142. I am DL, hope you're well, and I'm the only one here today. That's right, it's just me and you talking about music. Does it get any better than that? Yeah, it does. It gets better, you know, when evil Rachel Svend or whomever we decide to have on join. I like those a little more, but hey, we have fun with these, and I dig do, st- and I dig do, and I do dig studying for them. By the time you listen to this, we will all be knee-deep in September. Kids are back in school. uh, Don't know what part of the country you're in, how hot it is. Usually around that time, we have like our third short little heat wave here up in the Northwest, so I'll probably be too hot, but that's okay because you have that, and then you get perfect weather for about a month, unless it just decides to skip for fall. Here I am talking about weather. Who gives a shit? When you're here to talk about music, hope you've enjoyed the last few episodes of content. Got to do Dre with Sven. I mean, I'm telling you, Sven is, uh, I'm starting to call Sven the Dion Waiters of the podcast. Uh, That's a sport, that's a very weird sports reference. So I will just say, Sven is the guy. That uh, he doesn't play very often, but when he does, he walks on the court, he drains about four threes in two minutes, and then he sits his ass back down. That was a blast of an episode. I always have fun with my brother, Sven, and uh, our episodes this year, getting to do Tupac, Biggie, and Dre with him, have just been, that's been a blast. And you can tell that I don't think either of us look at our notes once. It's just one big, super fun conversation, and I love those. We did our third Break It Down of the year. That was a pinnacle D.L. Goes Dark episode. I smell t-shirts next year. No spoilers, but we are reworking the merch to come out at a later date. I have a feeling D.L. Goes Dark is going to be around there somewhere. We also did our quick fires. Hope you guys like those much much better group this time than we'd had i think in the last couple i think out of all 10 of those albums there are maybe two of them that i didn't like and one of them i was too hard on just you know for the sake of content uh also i didn't like it but man lots of really good stuff lots of stuff that caught me by surprise that makes me happy when that happens And cool stuff on the way. Cool stuff on the way that is happening in correlation with this current episode that I am doing here. I chose to do this one on my own because A, it's surrounding a book. And I didn't want to make everybody else read a book that is like, I think it's like 550 pages. It's a really long book. It's also based around a time in music and a place in music that I think that in the pod, I'm the only one that is really a huge fan of. Sven, Rachel, and Evil's musical likings were in a completely different place in this era than I was. It's surprising that I think my finger was a little more on the zeitgeist at this point in time. That's kind of a rarity. That's usually Rachel's job. But I think Rachel was... I don't don't know what the hell Rachel was listening. I'm guessing knee-deep in... Radio pop, but I could be wrong. She'll have to tell me. But, yeah, we got a couple episodes coming up. They're going to have to do with this episode. What is this episode? You heard me say I'm talking about a book. What? What is he doing? Why is he going to bore us with talking about it? Hey, books are awesome, man, okay? I've actually – I've never been a big music biography, music autobiography – this time in history on music book guy I just haven't you know like Cash by Johnny Cash is one of the greatest books ever written but you know musicians are usually so long-winded about themselves and man I've been I've gotten good luck with the books that I've chosen to read lately and a lot of them have been based around the artists that I wanted to talk about you know like Ronnie Spector and Mark Lanigan. And then there's this one that I came across and I had been meaning to read it for a while. And then they came out with a movie and I didn't want to watch the movie before I read the book. So got the book, read the book, and I decided I needed to talk about it. And not only did I need to talk about it, but it was the perfect segue into talking about one of my favorite bands of all time. So that's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to kind of break this thing down, tell you my thoughts. Maybe you read it too, and we can share some interactions have stayed about the same. We've gotten in spurts this year, just a, a state of the pod sort of thing. We've gone in spurts where we've had massive Towards the beginning of the year and one other time in the year, we had a massive growth. We were we gained an additional probably seven hundred to a thousand listeners an episode. You know, then it levels out. As far as interaction, it stays about the same. A uh, little bit more now than we used to have, but nothing huge, which is fine. Uh, I always have to remind myself that you know, do I reach out to the pods I listen to? No, no, I just listen to them. That said. We love it when we do get to interact, so uh, any of you that are thinking, ah, man, I want to say this to them, but they're probably busy or something, I'm never busy. I never do anything. Yeah, contact us. Contact us by email, contact at versecourseverse.com. Contact us, uh, DM us, at versecourseversepod on Instagram, which I don't think a lot of you like, and good for you. You shouldn't. Now, you have the Facebook, which, if you've seen our Facebook, we're a ghost on there. I post everything on there, but it just doesn't. I don't know if it's the community or we, more than likely we just haven't figured out how to do it yet, but we're working on that. A little bit of change probably coming season four, all in a good way, all in a way that we can give more to the listeners. I promise you that. Have a lot to get into today. So before we do, I'm going to start with what am i drinking well tonight it's hot i'm recording in august it's super hot here i needed something nice cool refreshing i just went with it well actually i'm a liar i went with a good old-fashioned tequila margarita the first time i made the margarita not only i really messed it up a i accidentally put an ounce i tried to go for a double which would call for four ounces of blanco instead of two and I know now that I put three in. I can picture it. I don't know why I did it. There are only three ounces. And I put some blackberry in it too just because we have these fresh blackberries that are amazing in the Northwest come August. They're massive, fantastic. But the problem was is because of that one ounce less of tequila, it was Disgustingly tart. It was just like drinking lime juice. So that was unfortunate. But you know what? I made another one. I corrected, and here I am. I'm on my second margarita. And this one is delectable. I used uh mi compo tequila, and then I use a cointreau. I'm a Cointro guy. Put a little bit of agave syrup in there, and that's really it. That's all you need for a good tequila. Oh, uh, I did I say lime juice? Well, obviously lime juice. And I said, tequila. I meant margarita. I'm sorry. I promise you I'm with it tonight. I promise you I'm ready to go. I'm excited to talk about this book. I'm excited to talk about this era in music. I think that for me, a lot of my favorite bands ever came out of it. And I don't think that it was just a... When this was happening real time, two things. Number one, I'm not a New York City guy. I, I could give a shit if you're from New York City. I'm not saying... That I don't like you people from New York City. Nothing like that. As a matter of fact, the last two times I've gone to New York City, I've came to the realization that the people are actually, if anything, stark contrast to popular belief, they're almost overly nice overly nice in the way that if you say that you're looking for a good coffee spot, they've got to sit down with you for five minutes and tell you exactly what four spots you need to hit, exactly where they're located, exactly the best way to get there. They are unbelievably helpful in my experience, which is amazing. It's a little bit of a, I know this, you don't, so let me sit down and explain it to you. But that's fine. That's fine. I still like it. But the only problem with New York City is that everybody thinks that New York City is the greatest city ever and that's the thing that I hate I hate that you know it sounds cheesy but to me it's true I've never been to a city where I didn't look at it and say I could see where there are aspects of this city that's the best city of all time with the exception of Reno I'm sorry Reno but you know you know it we've talked about this before so a I'm just the bright lights of New York City that doesn't do anything for me that doesn't wow me if you are from New York I don't care I like you and I have nothing against you. It's just not, you know, most people, oh, you're a band from New York City? Oh, I need to check you out more than a band from wherever, Georgia. No, I don't give a shit. Number two, I wasn't in a place in my life to pay attention to that stuff. And I wasn't big on, you know, I wasn't Google. I mean, what was it back then? Ask Jeeves or something like that in the early 2000s? I wasn't researching these bands and figuring out where they're from and stuff. The bottom line is, is, a lot of these bands became my favorite band. I didn't find them because of each other. I didn't find TV at the radio because I was a Strokes fan and I knew they were both from New York and blah, blah, blah. blah. No, it just happened. I just happened to hear TV on the radio and was like, holy shit. These guys are insane. So uh, it was a, not a happenstance, but by no rhyme or reason, By not, it wasn't like... Another Seattle grunge band? Okay, I have to check this out. Oh my God, it's great. No, it was just, oh man, this TV on the radio is incredible. Wait, they came from early 2000s New York City too? Holy shit, it was more that kind of thing. So all of these bands just happened to be bands that I absolutely love. And they they were from the same point in time in New York. And that's what we're talking about tonight. We are talking about the book by Lizzie Goodman, Meet Me in the Bathroom. It is a fantastic book. It is a unique book. It is at sometimes it's on the nose, but that's done on purpose. Sometimes it is a little too it's the very stereotypical sex in the city. You know who the real character of this book is? It's New York City. It's a little too much of that, but once again, that's kind of done purposefully, I think. And I'll, I'll explain that when I start getting into it. So meet me in the bathroom. I'm going to be completely honest. I did not even watch the movie before recording this episode. I'm not sure that I will. I mean, I'd love to see all the raw footage of the Strokes and the yeah, yeah, yeahs and things like that. And I, I'm sure someday I'll sit down and watch it. I just, I really feel like the book gave me everything I needed. And if I want to see the bands, I'll just go watch their live stuff. That $2 show that the Strokes did. I'll just watch that again for the 700th time. So that's what we're doing. Meet me in the bathroom. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about these bands. VerseCourseFirst.com at verseCourseFirstPod. Write us, join us. We have recorded most of, we've recorded probably 80 something percent of season three already. We're already thinking pretty squarely on season four. We're excited. There is change coming. There is positive change. There is a lot more content that is going to come. We are excited. We hope you are too. I guess I'll take this moment to... You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to thank those of you that have been with us from the jump. We have a handful of people that... Have supported us from before the podcast even started. We have a bigger handful of people that have been with us since the first part of season one. And none of these people have ducked out. Uh, a couple very specific people that have been with us every episode, one or two people that have sent me comments about every episode or, or you know, social media at it to those people, not only am I incredibly grateful in that friendship that we've grown, but I am also, we're going to, eventually I feel we are going to be in a good place as a podcast to be able to thank you in a manifestation of a gift that uh, I'm looking forward to. Nothing crazy. I'm not buying you a car. Uh, This is a independent podcast. So, you know, if anything, you're getting a couple quarters to put in a gumball machine. But I think you know what I'm saying. And yeah, just thank you. Thank you to everybody that has stuck with us. Thank you to everybody. I think that you have found that with sticking with us, the content has gotten better. We've gotten better at it. And the amount that we give to each episode as far as research, as far as the listening to the music and trying to understand it. Yeah, everybody has their off night. But I, I know that I, for one, have never taken an off day. I know that we want to be good. I know that the conversations that I've had with my fellow co-hosts are as such that I know that we all want to be really, really good at this and we want the content to be good for you guys. And hopefully you are noticing that. Hopefully if there's anything we can do, just let us know. Or if you just want to reach out and be like, hey man, can I tell you why my life sucks today? Fuck yeah, dude. Reach out to me. We can do a DL goes dark DM session. Or write me and tell me why I shouldn't be so sad. I'm usually not. Let's talk about Meet Me in the Bathroom. Let's talk about this great book that Lizzie Goodman wrote. Um, I did contact her. It was hard. Like there, She doesn't have a .com or anything like that. I DM'd her. I uh, did a message somewhere else. I don't remember where. I, I tried to get a t- in touch with her to let her know that we were talking about this. I don't know. Maybe have, have her on. I'm still going to try. She seems like a really fucking cool person. I don't think you write a book like this and not be cool. So I'll keep trying. Uh, Lizzie, if you're listening to this, come on the show. Come talk to me. I would love to uh, discuss this book. Let's get into it. Before we do, I got to talk about the music that you're going to hear in this episode. Uh, I picked it purposely because I could kind of see it going along with this episode. Certain bands from that era kind of sounds like this but the music that you heard coming into this episode going into this next break and then in the last break is by an artist named jack adamant jack adamant has an album that came out in 2022 called obscure places and cupboards he reached out i dig the stuff very much so he started around 2012 all of his influences that he lists himself is exactly what I would have comped him to. He lists uh bob mold he lists dinosaur jr that was the big one that stood out to me listening to this music was dinosaur jr uh, he listed the lemon heads and if you're listening to this music that's spot on that's exactly what this sounds like which is a lot of the influences for the music that we're going to talk about today i think jack adamant once again the song that you heard coming into the episode itchy memories it's from his 2022 album obscure places and cupboards Go to Bandcamp, go to Jack Adamant, that is A-D-A-M-A-N-T on Bandcamp. He's got an Instagram with a link tree, you can go there, all those regular things. Go to the Bandcamp, throw him a couple shekels, listen to the album. We support indie artists, we support good indie artists, and this is a good album. You will enjoy it. We're going to let him take us into the break. We're going to have fun on this episode. We will be right back. Happy. First that I got from you It's all I had in my mind Shake it, I've shaking out Too long as here from you something that I can't deny We are back The music once again that you heard uh, Coming out of the break That is Jack Adamant A-D-A-M-A-N-T The song is In My Life You heard it very early 90s brit meets american rock dig it very good stuff obscure places and cupboards is the name of the album go to jack's bandcamp go to spotify he's on spotify go to instagram go check out this music you heard it it's good like it follow it all that stuff that's going to help him you got to support the indie artists right right jack adamant thank you for the music thanks for letting us put it on the episode hope we get you a couple downloads let's talk meet me in the bathroom the title of the book written by lizzie goodman journalist back in the 2000s in new york city meet me in the bathroom of course comes from the title of a stroke song so once i saw that i was already in give me this book Let me read it as much as I can. I am a huge Strokes fan. They were one of the, we will, I think we talk about this in a couple later episodes, but they were a band that meant a hell of a lot to me in the early 2000s. When I was in the military, I was out to see a lot because of the events that were transpiring. And my big link to society, given that we weren't supposed to email much and stuff like that, was music. We were allowed to get care packages. We weren't allowed to have CDs ordered from Amazon, all that stuff. Music was my thing. It was all about CDs. And The Strokes, Is This It, was probably my number one. It was between that and To Kill the Moonlight by Spoon. But I would say Is This It was my number one listen to album, probably of the 2000s. And when I saw the name of this book, went in, looked, it is about the basically 2000 to 2011 in New York City and that post-punk bringing back the 70s heroin chic rock of New York City. I was all in. Lizzie Goodman. Who is Lizzie Goodman? Lizzie Goodman was a 20-year-old living in New York City. It's hard to find a lot of info on her. I didn't spend too much time. I wanted to talk mostly about the book. And like I said, I've been trying to contact her. I'm hoping she'll come on because as much as I love this book and I want to ask her about the book, I kind of want to ask her more about her. About a young female in this time, in the 2000s through 9/11, post 9/11, even pre 9/11, what it was like being a you know those people in those eras where you read a lot about the people that were writing for Rolling Stones in the 60s, but they were they were fans. You're a fan first, and you're a journalist just kind of getting to do what you love. This to me reads as one of those stories. Lizzie Goodman was a journalist, but really she was just a fan running around talking about what she was seeing. It's almost like podcast before podcast, but uh, probably a lot more work involved. She's also probably very uninterested in talking about this anymore, especially now that the movie came out. I bet everybody wants to talk about the movie, which I bet for her, writing the book would be probably annoying. I just want to know where the idea for the book came from is one of the big things, because here's the thing. If you haven't read this, you should. If you are a book lover, I would recommend reading this just because it's like nothing else you've ever read. It is in a different style than you will ever read, and to some it might be a huge pain in the ass, and I'll explain why. Meet Me in the Bathroom is essentially 550 pages of quotes, but it is so fluid and so well done that it is unbelievably impressive to me. You open up the book and there is a, basically a glossary at the beginning of the book that has every single person that's quoted in the book, and we're talking like four pages of index, who they were, what band they played in, what bass put, you know, Julian Casablanca's, lead singer the strokes it's a glossary of names like that and then you get into the book and that's all the book is the book is we were playing at the crystal ballroom on this night opening for so-and-so and And then it's the next person in the band saying oh yeah i remember that show that is the show where so-and-so happened and then ryan gentles is the next person if you don't know who that is then you have to go back to the glossary and be like ryan gentles who the hell is that oh, manager for the strokes. There is a lot of that, but it's incredibly well done. And like I said, it's so fluid. That's the biggest thing that impressed me about this is you would think if it's all quotes, you would think it'd be jig jaggy as hell. You would think that you'd have to be looking back and forth the whole time, all this stuff. You really don't have to, especially if you know that era pretty well and you know the players, you know who, if you know who Day is, then you're probably going to enjoy this book. Even if you don't love this era, I think it's a style that people will find intriguing. That's I absolutely did. And that's kind of how it reads, is, is it does read as a journalist compiling. And I can't imagine how long this took her to compile and put in order and put in a correct order that you like, because it does so smoothly transitioned from Karen O is talking about this venue and how they were working on this and why it didn't quite work and why it did and then the next quote is from so and so from Jonathan Fire Eater saying "No man that, that actually did work and let me tell you why. It's really well put together. It helps that I think Lizzie was really close with all these people. She got really close with the guys in The Strokes. I think she was like one of the closest friends of one of the guys. I don't remember if it was Fab or Albie or whoever and doing a lot of writing in the early 2000s where keep in mind with all of this this is still a physical media time this is 100% physical media blogs were just now becoming a thing but they were extremely local and we'll we'll touch on that later we'll kind of touch on how this era kicked off the blogosphere which then kicked off things like spin and vice and stuff like that that so, you know, Spin was a magazine, but became successful online more than I think most of the others did, because this is back in the day where internet surpassing the written word was insane. It was not going to happen. Like I said, a movie of the same title, Meet Me in the Bathroom, came out in 2022. I have watched clips. It is a lot of... You know, the Strokes got signed, and the Strokes are in London, and look at the silly Strokes jumping around like little kids, stuff like that. It looks interesting. I will watch it. I just haven't yet. And honestly, I want this episode to be about the book, and I kind of like the idea that when this episode comes out, my vision of the novel will be in no way tainted by the movie, if that makes sense. That's probably a little eye-rolly, whatever. So Meet Me in the Bathroom, I will start with, as I said before, it took me... It was a little hard to get past because you do realize very, very early on that this is just crawling all over the genitals of New York. Tons of random artists, you know, the Doves, TV on the Radio, all these great bands that are just, ooh, let me hit you with this New York platitude. That didn't bode well for me because you all know me. I don't like that shit. I don't like the, there's just something about New York that's different than everywhere else. I get it. But there was a lot of that on this, but after all of that, she does sprinkle in. And in fact, I think the very last quote in that paragraph where it is, you know, this is New York and bam and blah, and look at the greatest city on earth. It ends with a quote from Jack White. That's basically saying, yeah, New York's a great city. I'm glad it's there. I would never live there. And I love that. I love that's kind of where I am. Yes. New York, great city, whatever. It's also, fuck that place. That's kind of Jack White. You know, Jack White's the Nashville guy. I loved that it ended with the quote from, you know, all of this just jumping all over New York's dick to Jack White saying, I would never live there. So this pre-9-11, almost 9-11 New York City music, not even New York City, sorry, music industry was in a tailspin. We talked about 97 in our first year as a podcast, and while it was a fun year, there were a lot of good records to read off and things like that, it's not like it was something to write home about. It's not like their Soundgarden had broken up. Oasis didn't deliver on their potential. I know there's a lot of Oasis lovers that listen to this, but you know I'm right. They did not deliver on their potential, whether it was because they couldn't get out of their own way Or they weren't as good as they thought they were. Whatever your opinion is on that, Oasis had not delivered on their potential. Blur wasn't Britpop anymore. Blur was uh, whatever the hell Blur became, which is this kind of, I don't know. It was like Blur and the Arctic Monkeys chasing each other's tail together. The weirdest thing blur I think it was Mark Spitz in the it was Mark Spitz in the book that said that blur had become more like pavement which is I I loved that comp I thought that was absolutely true and then he said there was always going to be The Dave Matthews bands type, they're like pigeons, is what he said, like pigeons. like There's always going to be those steady, huge, cult-following bands. But the bottom line was is there was a ton of money still in the music industry and no rock stars. Napster hadn't become all the way Napster yet. People hadn't figured out the digitalization yet. So there was all this money to be had, and yeah, hip-hop was picking up, and hip-hop was getting bigger, but there was that new thing needed, and I think whenever that new thing is needed, it's just a matter of time before humans spark something. There were two different sparks. As far as the Brits you had the electro stuff start to kick in all of a sudden raves became a thing you had dance parties and then in new york you had this rock thing the rock thing is always going to be bigger because electro yes electro was huge it was massive it started this massive wave of techno house djing was now massive again Everybody, when you're in the electro era, everybody's just going to slip into one big ecstasy coma. You know, Moby was a big deal. I love Moby. I don't care what anybody says. I think Moby's music is great. He has what I think is a 10 out of 10 album that we'll touch on at some point. I'm sure you all know which Moby album I'm talking about. It's not going to... Hit culturally the way that rock and roll is and while it might even have a longer lasting effect I mean you look at what Coachella is and has become and things like that That's all because of this electro movement in the early 2000s and late 90s You had you know like the massive house Ferry Corsten type DJs coming on and it was a big deal You had the parallels in New York. You had the Detroit slash New York City. And without waxing too philosophical, 30 years after the Stooges and the Ramones, you have Jack White and the Strokes. The White Stripes are included a lot in this book. Obviously, they weren't New York City. They played a lot in New York City because reasons, obviously. If you want to play live, you're going to have to play New York City. The White Stripes are brought up a lot. I don't think enough. Because the white, to me, this movement was basically the white stripes, the strokes, and LCD sound system. LCD sound system speaking a lot more to that electro vibe. But the strokes and the white stripes were kind of the antithesis of white stripes, had the super dirty, super messy, maybe a little bit from the country bluesy type of stuff. And the Strokes had that super '70s velvet underground Mick Jagger's now in New York Rolling Stones thing that was gonna be so big. This book also concentrates a lot on Karen O and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. Well deserved. They were massive at the time. I do think, and Lizzie even said this in an interview. Karen O's story spoke to her a lot more because Karen O was female. The the yeah, yeah, yeahs I don't think had as big of a cultural significance as a lot of these bands. I shouldn't say that. I should say significance outside of New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeahs were huge. They weren't as huge as a lot of these other bands outside of New York City. I think if you were there in that time and this fucking woman was getting up on stage and she was thrashing around and getting fucking wasted and jumping off and giving BJs to her microphone, like nobody had seen shit like this. Yeah, you go into a fucking 200-person club and you see that. I'm sure that the people that lived in New York City, I would say that out of all these bands, the yeah, 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 is probably if you're just going into some small club, that band would have kicked your ass more than any of these. But for the outside world, for the outside world where MAPS, was our first introduction to the yay yeah, yeah yes, maybe not so much. This kind of sounds negative and I didn't mean it to. I'm not I think the yay yeah, yeah, yes are fantastic. I love their story. I love Karen O. Oh. She's magnificent and I think the things that she did as a female in this world that was still very, you know, females were there for being a groupie, not for fucking being a lead singer. As much headway as you think we would have made from bands in the 80s like the Bangles and the Go-Go's and then you get into the 90s and you have Hole and Veruca Salt and now you're in the 2000s and it's the yeah yeah yeahs and I don't know if you want to include like Paramore I think was later but to be the woman lead in New York City I mean it couldn't have been easy. And then, of course, the book talks a lot about Interpol. That is another one of the bands that came out of the New York movement that I've always loved. My introduction to Interpol was Antics. It wasn't Turn on the Bright Lights, which came out. And keep in mind, that was 2002. So they were definitely after The Strokes. But even like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, I think for me, chronologically, I always think of Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs as coming in before Interpol, and I think it's because they were playing a lot more in New York City before Interpol was, but... Uh, Yeah, 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 his first album was 2003. Turn On The Bright Lights was 2002. Like, I think as as far as the introduction to the rest of the world, it was The Strokes and then it was everybody else. Even James Murphy, aka LCD Sound System, he'd been around for fucking ever. A lot of the stuff that happened with him coming out with his album, his albums didn't come out until like mid-2000s, but he'd been making music and doing stuff around there forever really the introduction to the rest of the world that's why this book concentrates on the strokes because it was the strokes and then everybody else that came after them and that's it there's no arguing that the strokes were the biggest thing in three countries as far as rock and roll goes before they even fucking came out with an album she got a few of the strokes to talk a good amount on this and get some direct quotes from them and a lot of this picks up from the modern age EP. The modern age EP being the the Strokes EP that was making its way around New York. Now, they weren't the first band that really started this off though. There were a couple other ones. A good amount of you that are listening to this are probably familiar with the Walkman, right? Great band, awesome band. But before the Walkman, up until the late 90s, there was a band called Jonathan Fire Eater. They were based out of Washington, D.C., but they were trying to make it up in New York City around this time. And they were the first big post-punk 70s-style rock stuff that was really hitting off in New York City. That They were playing the clubs and everybody was like, holy shit, what is this? A lot of it was because of Stuart Lupton, who was the uh, lead singer, who this was very stereotypical. This band didn't make it because Stuart Lupton did the drugs and the alcohol and the women thing. So much to a point that it just didn't, the band didn't work out. But they have a 1997 album that came out actually via DreamWorks, surprisingly enough, called Wolf Songs for Lambs. I think it is the first amazing album that came out of all this. If you do not know Fire Eater, go check him out. Go listen to Wolf Songs for Lambs. It's a incredibly awesome album. No One Loved Like That, These Little monkey, Monkeys. It's really good, and they were the first band that kind of had this feel to them. At this time, the Strokes were getting together. The Strokes had known each other for a long time, you know, private school friends. They were affluent. Julian Casablanca's lead singer's dad was... You know in fashion and they were doing okay living in new york city they did work their asses off and they did know their appeal early on the thing to remember about the strokes is they were coming in at a time in the late 90s when it was trendy to not be trendy it was trendy to the whole attractive rock star would it was t-shirt and dirty jeans I don't give a shit about anything. And here come the strokes. And yeah, they're young and they're greasy-haired kids and all that stuff, but they're wearing skinny jeans and Converse, and they've got the designer shirt on, or they've got a button-up or, or even a suit jacket. This stuff was unheard of. The people, they would come on stage, and they didn't start even performing until 1999. Their first show was at the Spiral. But then they very quickly got gigs at Luna Lounge on the east side and Mercury. Mercury being like the big, big, big one. Mercury Lounge was where all the people went to find good music, and that's where Ryan Gentles found them. And yes, they did kind of have it easy in the sense that they didn't have to do the poor man's tour and all that stuff as a band. But, you know, by all accounts in this book, by everybody that talks about them, that knew them, them themselves, they really did work their ass off. Like they practiced all the fucking time. They wanted to be as tight as tight can be. And as you will learn, which I'm sure we'll talk more about in the strokes breakdowns, Julian was... He was a taskmaster. You don't expect it from the Strokes, but he was that guy that was sitting in a studio concentrating on a hi-hat for a month. He was that guy. It's surprising to hear. I didn't realize that until I read this book, but very much like that. And it was all just such a whirlwind for all of them. And meanwhile, while the Strokes are doing their thing, which is there's a lot of people in it that are they knew right away there's also people in the book that are saying i did not you know the strokes wasn't i didn't care like they were they were cool and all that but they were these handsome tall guys that would walk in and rock out but it wasn't my super thing i think the thing about the strokes was the word of mouth caught fire so fast and not just you know in europe because this had a very european feel to it and that's why their first tour was in europe their first tour wasn't even the us they got big when Is This It came out in 2001, they immediately went to Europe. And meanwhile, you have Karen O oh with the yay, yay, yay That that was more of a tumultuous, like you saw them live and they were so intense. You know, Karen O, who's this Korean-American musician. I don't know. There were a couple things saying she was looking for an escape from racism and sexism. I don't know if that's a thing. They talked about how she was a really shy person in general, but then she'd get drunk and get on stage, and it was an entirely different beast. You also had James Murphy, who was this socially awkward studio engineer that became LCD Sound System. Paul Banks talks a lot, and this is pre-dark suit and tie, brooding Paul Banks. This is kid in a trucker hat playing an acoustic guitar. Paul Banks. They set the stage with the faces of what it would be very early on. I wish there was a little more TV on the radio in this, but that's okay. The you know they weren't a massive. They stayed indie. And that's because TV on the radio was much more, they were artsy. And even reading this book, I didn't realize how much music was kind of their second or third option. Tune Day and the guys in TV on the radio, they were artists. Like they wanted to paint. They wanted to... Sculpt they want to do shit like that and they loved music and they loved listening to it and making it But the music was kind of an afterthought, which is insane because if you think about the music the TV on the radio came out with Could you imagine being in New York City in? 2002 or 3 and hearing the songs that would eventually become desperate youth bloodthirsty babes I mean what a time to be in it. There are parts going in this same time in the book That once again, it gets a little annoying and not Lizzie. It's nothing that Lizzie Goodman's doing. It's the people talking. There are times where it goes into a bunch of guys basically bitching about how after the seventies, it was either hip hop or shitty, shitty Seattle music. The front man from long wave fucking goddamn. He talks about how bad loser by Beck and songs like that were. And there's great quotes surrounded by shithead New York elitist quotes. And I think she probably did it on purpose. It just became the place again for a long time. It You know, there was Seattle, there was San Francisco, there was Florida, and all of a sudden, thanks to the strokes, it's New York again. Even people like Elliot Smith, that you wouldn't picture... Like, why the fuck would Elliot Smith give a shit about being in New York City? But he was hanging out in New York City a lot, apparently... In the book, they're talking about how he would get fucked up and talk about killing himself all the time. I didn't write down who has the quote, but the quote said, the secret was to bring up the Beatles existing and he would get happier. And then, you know, you had the like the wannabe Elliot Smith and Ryan Adams that moved down. I've never been a huge Ryan Adams guy, and this book kind of made it even more so for me. There is no part in this book where they're saying Ryan Adams is a piece of shit or anything like that. You kind of can either go one way with it. Because towards the end of this book, there's a lot of big surprise, drugs ruin everything sort of stuff. And if you know Ryan Adams, you know that that was a big deal for him. He was a big fan of the old heroin and all the other drugs because of that Ryan Adams stuff, there was actually some controversy in the promotion of this book. I There were pieces towards the end of this book that talk about Albie from the Strokes and Ryan Adams' drug use. Adams got really pissed about it, lashed out at the Strokes on Twitter because of some of the quotes that were from Julian and Albert. The thing is in the book, when you have three people kind of saying the same thing, and then one person who is the dickhead saying something else, I mean, you can kind of put two and two together. Back to the Strokes and their rapid ascent, which was just mini Beatlemania in a lot of ways. The early footage shows you. Not only was it so well cultivated, but their sound was so different than anything that people had heard in forever. And it was kind of like one of those greatest hits things where when a band's been together and practiced a ton for so long and then they come out with an album, it's every single song is like, God, they've probably been working on this forever one of the lines in it perpetually drunken vaguely homoerotic and yet somehow oddly innocent they projected a tangible lost boy's energy that is a fantastic quote and because of that the strokes were the biggest thing in the world for about a year i'd say until they get to their second album and then all the second album stuff happens what thought to say it will take me a while. Too, so cool just the way you are you're coming with plan, so clear you want to have a fight right between the, the music that you heard coming in from the break that is jack adamant out of Stockholm, sweden go to his bandcamp jack adamant a d a m a n t bandcamp com this is all from his new album obscure places and cupboards it is a great album I love the uh, 90s take by the Swedish artist, very cool. The song you just heard is called Leaves, track six, I already played in My Lie, and of course track one which started this, Itchy Memories. Great album, fun album, all you people waxing nostalgia on the 90s, this is for you. He's keeping a great groove alive. Dig it. He's got a lot more stuff as well on Bandcamp. Jack, thank you very much for letting us play your music on the pod. We hope you get a couple downloads. Hey, go get them on Bandcamp. We support indie artists around here. So Stroke's second album, Room on Fire, doesn't do as well. uh, We think. I'll get to that in a second. I'm not going to go through their discography. I'm not going to go through personal band history and the songs and things like that. Because we're going to be doing that in the next episode or two moving forward with some help from friends. So more on the strokes later. But Room on Fire didn't do as well. A, people either said it's too much like the first album. B, people said, you know, flash in the pan, kind of done with it. And C, this is when digitalization was full force. So while this album probably did sell something like a few, maybe even four million, it only read as like 1.5, something like that. And uh, I do think it sold a lot better. But as far as the reviews, it didn't do well. The personality was back. You had the hives dressed up in their white and black suits. You have Interpol that was in all black with the red lighting and the dark and the brooding. And you have the strokes, which were white belt suit jacket, skinny jeans, and Converse. Uh, Hipsters, man. Lots and lots and lots and lots of hipsters. The other thing that this started was the whole idea of online blogging. You had a few. uh, Laura Young started a blog online. It was called The Modern Age. It was basically all about the strokes and the white stripes. That was kind of the first experience of music blogging. It was all New York City based. It was really it's. If you read some of it, it's not extraordinary. It's nothing neat. It's just a fan fawning over the strokes and the white stripes over and over again. You also had Stereo Gum. That's an old Air song. The band Air and Band Air is a great band, by the way. If you don't know them, you had a blog called Sarah's So Boring. Ever since she stopped drinking, and I think she was the one that worked for Spin. Spin was a Magazine at the time and they had the young people that smelled it and said you need to start doing online stuff spin was a pain spin was a holdout though spin was like Rolling Stone like we have our bread and butter in our magazines we're not changing it. It really was pitchfork pitchfork was the real first large entity that believed fully in the online thing. And they were the ones that kind of went all in. You had Vice too at the time, which they were still cool. They were still hip. They weren't, uh, they all kind of turned into something else. But the online blogging, we all know that kind of became the new thing. You don't buy as many magazines as you do read articles anymore. That's just my opinion, right? And that all kind of started around here. Going back to Room on Fire by The Strokes, one of the other reasons that I don't think it did as well, I'm not saying that all of these other bands bit off of them, but The Strokes opened the floodgates for these bands to come out and say, we can do that. The Killers, Kings of Leon, the Hives I talked about, you had the Vines, you had all of these bands just come out of the woodworks. (laughs) Killers was probably my least fit. Nah, Kings of Leon. Kings of Leon was fine. They were kind of a southern version. Very clean, crisp, produced, cleanly version of this stuff. You had the hives, which the hives were a personality. They were loud and they were brash. And Jack White did a show with them where they were both on the stage taking turns. And Jack White said that when it was the White Stripes playing and the hives were kind of in the dark on the other side of the stage, they would just stand there like at military rest position with their hands behind their backs, just standing still and jack white talks about how that was like the coolest thing he'd ever fucking seen he thought he loved it so much he loved the hives i think my favorite out of all those that didn't get big was the vines the vines were australian they spoke a lot more to people like me that were way more into the grungerous stuff the vines had that grunge feel to them they had that three-man band violent, angry, insane frontman. The Vine started in like 94, but they got big with Highly Evolved, which came out in 2002. The song Get Free is one of the coolest songs you'll ever hear. Come to find out, Craig had uh, Asperger's, which a lot of people in the book say, you know, that makes so much more sense. But back then, nobody knew what Asperger's was. I don't even know if the word Asperger's was around yet in 2002 when they play Letterman and he's just jumping on the couch and he's throwing stuff at the Paul for drummer, and it's pretty fucking crazy, and they were notorious for fighting on stage, and Craig would get drunk and do some very not normal things, and that's what a lot of people thought it was normal, but it's very Nirvana-esque. It's very these violent, angry kids getting up and playing this rock. I loved The Vines. That highly evolved album, I think, is fantastic. I'm sure that we will talk about it at some point on the pod, and then The other one that I really love that came out of here is Franz Ferdinand. There is a part in the book where Julian talks about hearing very specific bands and thinking that the Strokes were in trouble. That the door that the Strokes had opened had allowed these bands in to come in and kind of kick their ass. He talks about how the killers he automatically knew were going to be the most radio friendly out of all these people bombastic almost i mean they're from vegas almost vegas-esque showmanship type of thing which doesn't really work for me but man they were popular and julian knew it and the other band he talks about was franz ferdinand they heard franz ferdinand and they were like these guys are better than us all of these bands though i really just think that they're thanks to the strokes and that's really what this book concentrates on you get about five pages of franz ferdinand five of the killers you know, Brandon Flowers does talk in it, and you get some Ryan Adams, you get some Franz Ferdinand, you, uh, you, I don't think anybody from the Vines is in it, but you do get some Hives talk, but really, it's it's the Strokes. There was still a hole in the American market, because the yeah, yeah, yeahs, the Strokes, and the Interpol hated press, and that's where the killers got to work their way in. The yeah, yeah, yeahs were notorious for eventually being called like the no-no-nos, because they said no to fucking everything. They didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to put in the work. They loved going on stage. They loved playing, but the, you know going to a festival and stuff, they just didn't want to do it. And the Strokes were mad at everybody. I think they were sensitive. <laughs> when you're shot out of a cannon that young and told that you are the next gods of rock and you guys are going to be the biggest thing ever, and then you come out with your first album and then Is This It? And that is verified. Everybody says, oh my God, We were right. You guys are the next musical gods. And then you come out with your second album. And also keep in mind that in the early 2000s, that was a really big time for, maybe it was actually a little bit later, but if I'm thinking right, I'm thinking that when the internet started, it was automatically, wait, you know what we can do is we can be terrible people. So you had these Perez Hiltons coming up and nobody wanted to talk about anything good. Nobody wanted to get online and say, holy shit. The show that The Strokes put on last night was incredible. Now, you know, holy shit, the show last night, they get on the show and Julian's drunk and then they get off and Julian's making out with two girls in the corner. That's what people wanted to write about. And we've been doing it ever since. Actually, you know, one of the cool parts was Ryan Gentles, the manager of The Strokes. I don't remember if he met her or if he was just giving her demo, but Regina Specter and he was blown away. Of course and he gave it to Julian and in the book he talks about how like he couldn't give Julian anything Julian hated everything that anybody gave him because it's he's the strokes okay I don't we are the band you are not the band go away but Ryan gave him Regina Spector's demo, and and Julian was immediately like, "Who find this person, get this person over here, immediately brought her on tour. And Regina Specter was this young little Russian girl that's on tour, this rock tour with the Strokes, and I don't remember who the other band was, uh, Kings of Leon, and they really took care of her. And that's the thing is... For all the shit you can talk about, the Strokes and the drunk and the drugs and the shitty to the press, they were a tight-knit group. They were a tight-knit band. There was a reason why Ryan, they didn't want Ryan Jentles. Uh I thought that they didn't want Ryan Jentles <laughs> managing Ryan Adams because Ryan Adams was kind of a prick to the Strokes and kind of soul, stole some of their stuff and things like that. In this book, it really plays more of a line of, you know, Ryan was – trying really hard to do fucking heroin with Albert. And Julian basically said, you need to drop Ryan now. And to Ryan, like they had a whole meeting with the Strokes and Ryan Gentles and Ryan Adams, or Julian basically said, if you come near Albert anymore, I'm going to kick the fucking shit out of you. That was one of... Julian had a reputation too. Him and Jack White were the two guys in this book. They say a couple of times that there were two guys... These are musicians. They're not, they're powder puffs. You have these bullshitters. You remember the late 80s when it was like Axl Rose and who was the other guy? I think it was like the lead singer for Poison or something like that. But you know all this shit talk, like I'm going to kick your ass, man. Musicians are full of shit. They're all pussies. But Julian and Jack had the reputation that, no, these are big dudes that will actually scrap. But it does paint a lot more of a picture of the whole reason the Strokes broke up is because they weren't going to replace Albert. The Strokes were the Strokes. They were a tight-knit family. It's all of us or it's nothing. And Albert couldn't do it anymore. Albert, the drugs just got way too much of an upper fucking hand. He couldn't tour. He couldn't show up to gigs. He would be that that whole Lane Staley fall asleep in the studio thing. You know, we go into talking about like Angles, the Strokes album, which isn't very good. I always thought that that was because Julian was like, fuck this. I'm not coming. I'm too big of a star. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be... But in the book, it really paints a lot more of a picture of they couldn't. Albert was too fucked up. It's interesting. And once you got to the later 2000s is when a lot of these bands started to, what do you say? They You started to see the fatalities. The yeah, yeah, yeahs were kind of one of the first one. I mean, they've gone back and they've been successful. When Karen moved from New York, she moved to LA. But before that, she had that kind of infamous drunk fall off stage. They had this big concert in a festival, I think it was, and she fell off stage with like the speaker that she was jumping on falling onto her then so that was kind of her big uh i'm gonna clean up go get sobered up before the second album a lot of these sophomore albums they were kind of doomed from the get-go when your band like interpol or the Yeah, yeah as or tv on the radio and your sophomore album's going to be bigger people aren't going to like it your your original fans are going to be kind of mad at you you know when when interpol came out with antics a lot of people didn't like it. A lot of people said it was too different. It wasn't that, you know, super, super dark New York City warehouse vibe. When Antics came out, at Interpol is also opening for The Cure and just destined to be big. They were handsome dudes the the women freaking loved interpol carlos the bass player carlos who wore this like all tight black suit with the gun holster and sometimes the red tie and stuff like uh one of the <laughs> one of the parts in the book somebody's saying that he looks like a hitler youth it's kind of true it's borderline ss but that's another one of those albums that was right in the heart of the napster shit you know when metallica went after Metallica was kind of not purposely, they didn't care, but they were representing a lot of these bands that kind of needed this money. The problem with the way that Metallica went about things, I don't think Metallica was wrong for going after Napster. It was their music, they have a right to it, completely makes sense. The problem is, is that Metallica didn't go after Napster, Metallica went after their own fans. Metallica found and researched and, you know, we have the FBI looking up these kids that are downloading their music and they're going after them. That's what Metallica did that fucked everything. Most bands didn't care about Napster because most bands weren't making that money anyway. A band like Interpol or TV on the radio is a good example again. You have Napster, this big, huge digitalized sharing program, to them, that's great. More kids are going to hear my music now, and then they're going to come to our shows and buy our t-shirts, and that's where we're going to make money. Because none of those bands were fucking making money off of the records. None of those bands had good deals or anything like that. So Napster, by a lot of these people, was not viewed as a bad thing. Toonday. <laughs> From TV on the radio said he'd show up at places and people were ignorant to how insulting it was that people would show up with like burnt CDs asking him to sign it. Really the only person back then around the Napster time right before the Napster time that had it all figured out was Moby. And that's why when Moby came out with play, he individually licensed every single song from that album. And bam, that's the rights thing, all taken care of. That's why you hear Moby on every, I think for like a decade, you heard Moby on every fucking commercial that ever was made. And then comes the next wave. Then comes Vampire Weekend, MGMT, The National, Grizzly Bear, college nerd Rocks, starts. And I'm not saying that MGMT or The National aren't passionate. I'm just saying there's always that second wave that kicks in and... You can't compare what the Strokes or the Killers or the Hives were doing to the National or MGMT. But the good news is, is unlike the early 90s in Seattle, this wasn't a big, we're all just going to go until we die. We're all just going to go until we overdose or commit suicide or that sort of thing. You know, you had a couple people not get out alive, but then you had Julian who found his wife that actually his wife was like an intern for the strokes. Whoops. He stopped drugs, alcohol, cigarettes with his wife at the same day and never did them again. That's the kind of guy you're dealing with, with Julian Casablanca's cocaine, weed, alcohol, cigarettes one day he's just like fuck this i'm not doing it anymore and he didn't do it anymore that's not you you aren't a normal person if you have the ability to do that the amount of will you have to have to do that is insane at the end of the novel they came out with some poll for the highest of the decade between 2000 and 2010 and lcd sound system was number one so in the end, the guy that had kind of been around forever, the kind of slavish, middle-aged white dude, not middle-aged, I think it was like late 30s when he got big. Maybe he was like 40. He was the one that ended up doing it. Then again, the quote after that, if they're talking about that, is James Murphy, is LCD Sound Systems, saying that the, the best record that came out of all of that by far was Is This It? It was an era of extreme importance. It was an era that... So much great stuff was was brought out of, and man, I'm glad it existed. And I know that there's a lot of listeners out there that, that are okay with the Strokes. In fact, I'm not sure how many people out there actually love the Strokes. Spoiler alert, coming up, I'm going to talk about the Strokes with Evil, with Rachel, and with a special guest. Nobody took to them the way that I did at all. The guest appreciated them a lot, you could tell, and I think really liked a lot of the art. Um, I think Evil liked a lot of the harder stuff. Rachel was very unimpressed. None of them you could tell really just took to it and probably won't listen to them again. I think a lot of people are like that with The Strokes, which is funny because they were so unbelievably goddamn big that strokes logo that chrome logo with the black backing that kind of hood ornament logo that the strokes had was everywhere i think i feel 90% of people under the age of 30 owned a strokes t-shirt but it's a flash in the pan and you'd have missed it and i think it's a flash in the pan because i don't know how much any of these these people wanted to be in bands they wanted to make a living that way but none of them wanted to be famous i like bands like that i always will it's a great read this book Meet me in the bathroom, go check it out, or don't. I don't care. Join us next week. Next week, we're going to have fun. Next week, we are having a special guest on with Evil and I to dissect this band I've talked about quite a bit, The Strokes. Who is our special guest? I'll tell you now. You listeners, you know her, you love her, the Carrie Kirkland. That's right. Carrie Kirkland is joining us to dissect the strokes i thought that she would be a great guest to have on she always has done such a good job we've had her on a couple times and the last time we had her on she did such a good job bringing a, a perspective of industry community stay tuned for that first course first.com that first course first pod hope you like the episode go listen to some strokes go listen to some interpol go listen to some jonathan fire Eater. i guarantee you 90 percent of you've never heard them they are amazing hey thanks for joining me on this episode Thanks for joining us on our next episode, like I know you will. Good night and good luck. Oh, I, oh, I want to stay right by your side.